Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like about some warm stuff that they like. A book or a TV show or a film or a record they go back to again and again for comfort. This time I'm talking to Professor Sophie Scott. Sophie is the Director of University College London's Department of Cognitive Neuroscience and she's very interested in humour and comedy and laughter and how humans use it. And Sophie has chosen to talk about ripping yarns. Michael Palin and Terry Jones's post-Python series of Edwardian boys' adventure story spoofs, each one a self-contained play shot beautifully on film and skewering something amazingly British and amazingly stupid. I asked her if she wanted to do one of them and she said, no, we'll do all of them. So this is a two-parter. You've chosen to talk about ripping yarns, mm. which is a delightful thing to choose, because then we can just spend a while just thinking about Michael Palin in his pomp. Yes, <laughs> I can remember watching the first series. I can remember. I can remember watching uh, Tonkins and School Days. Uh, the, you know, obviously in the nineteen seventies, everyone watching everything all together. There's no yes. other way of doing that. There's one, one TV in the house, and um, and I can remember it being extremely funny and just completely catching my interest. I was old enough that I could I could remember Monty Python being on television. But it it was qualitatively different and there was something simultaneously kind of madder about it, but also gentler. Yes. Um and it really leaning into some of the, the beautiful silliness in Monty Python. It yeah. really kind of placed that fully at the centre. gift of discipline, knowing that it is only through the constraints of others that we come to know ourselves, and only through true misery can we find true contentment. <laughs> we ask thee especially today, O oh Lord, to remember the owner, trainer, and rider of Doncaster Boy in the 415 at <laughs> And may the fire of thy just and awful wrath fall upon Biggs, Normanton, Potter Minor, and Tookie. Amen, amen. But also very recognisable, that kind of... Um those very now excessively old-fashioned but books for boys and girls which are yeah. full of tales of daring do which were always very kind of morally correct you were people were doing the right thing in these stories it was a very clear yeah. steer and and so that was all the opening sequence is kind of tipping you off to that sort of which right, is, this is beautiful as well i mean i i remember there being a really big issue for me i really liked something that started with a good title sequence mm. and especially something that started with maybe a cartoon title sequence or a drawn title sequence rather than frames of people holding up sherry glasses and <laughs> freeze frames yes. um it looks classy yeah. and you go oh i'm going to get a treat and yeah. it's a beautiful um scene setter at the start that says this is the world a ripping tale of a young man caught in a world of changing values and forced by circumstances to the most despicable act known to the british army <laughs> And like a lot of stuff that certainly Michael Palin does, there's a, a thing about 
childhood, about what you grew up with and yes. what you were taught as normal. Yeah. And then questioning it, maybe. Yeah. I had been at Greybridge for two weeks and the dour, forbidding place had produced such misery in my soul and fear in my mind as I had never known in my whole life. Again, although they're they're all adult stories, the, these roots in this childhood yes. fiction is there. But the um, I mean, it's obviously there in Somkinson School Days, which is framed completely like you know well, books about going to boarding school. Yeah, were really really common. Even if most people weren't going to boarding school, it was all it was all Mallory Towers. And the strange thing about boarding school stories is that I remember reading them, and I didn't go to boarding school. And I imagine that most of the kids who first encountered Harry Potter hadn't been to boarding school. But the language of it is so woven into childhood stories when you read Enid Blyton mm. or whatever that you know all the rules of it, even if you've never experienced yes. it. Yes, I was really struck by my my son really engaging with the. Molesworth books. Yes, ditto me. I love them. Completely different language in almost every <laughs> single way. But there's something that shines through about the experience and, of course, obviously the humour. That yeah, is yeah. just He just sits and happily reads the whole book. I suppose for someone like Palin, who did go to a posh school, Shrewsbury, went to a public school uh, that his dad had insisted he goes to. Palin and Jones I find interesting out of the Pythons in that uh, they're both middle class. But there's a thing where certainly Jones is a scholarship boy and a grammar school boy. He's a slight outsider to this. And Palin, I found out today, his dad didn't own his house. They rented it. They're still just on the very edge of the middle class. So the rules and looking up. Yeah, just slightly outside it. It's interesting revisiting it as a sort of side eye at what was already falling into a slightly embarrassing kind of perspective on human, yeah. uh, sorry, human, British colonialism. <laughs> it's not human, human. Not, just, not all it's human. It's just about Britain, isn't it? It's not <laughs> it's even just, about the human condition. I must condition. really widen and narrow that one. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think everyone else is fine. <laughs> I think they're the Belgians. Aren't they? yeah. But, yeah. And again, I guess that comes out of their 60s kind of roots in slightly more anarchic yeah. and starting to question all that. Yes. Like glories of empire. But it's it's also it's an, uh, there's an affection that sort of keeps you I don't know, makes it accessible even if you can't quite remember that point in how we were feeling about things. The reasons for what I did that fateful night in India really began in my childhood. I was luckier than most boys of my age in that my father did have enormously large amounts of money. Yeah, he knows the rules. I mean, it's, it's yeah. noticeable that whenever Palin's invited to write something for the Python books and when he's invited to write things for comic relief books, he'll do things like sort of Biggles goes to see Bruce Springsteen. He loves <laughs> boy stories and then subverting them, putting different rules in it. Yeah. He was He's grown up in this world, in this aquarium, so mm. he knows all the rules of it. And yet he loves to sort of celebrate and send it up at the same time. Yes, exactly, exactly. There's a warmth to the... Yeah. To the spoof. All these things, whether it's about football or sort of northern epics of sort of a brave young men who sort of saved the town from a mining disaster. These are stories obviously he loved growing up, but he's reached an age where he's questioning them. We should talk yeah. about what the show is, because it's if you if you've got the DVD of this, there's a great bit at the beginning when you press play and it brings up the clapperboard at the beginning and it just says Michael Palin special. Because it wasn't called Ripping Yarns. It was just the Michael Palin show. Right. He had been given his own show as a spin-off. And then he'd say, can my friend come? And you see there's a slightly sort of hands-off relationship with Python. And he doesn't want Terry Jones or Terry Jones doesn't want to be pulled into this to be to be clearly a Python spin-off. Mm. But they want to write together because they like writing together and they know how to write and they write good sketches together. It's Michael's show with his friend helping. What is that, Tomkinson? Sir. It's a bit big for a model, isn't it? It's a full-scale model, sir. It's not a model if it's full-scale, Tomkinson. It's an icebreaker. It's an interesting project because what happens after Python, as, as would happen with a band, when they split up, you get to find out which different voices made up that band. It's like listening to a George Harrison solo album. You suddenly go, oh, there you are. Yeah. Um, and there's a real sense in this that, that it's their voice. It's certainly Palin and Jones's voice, which yeah. is you suddenly go, oh, you did those sketches. Yes. I remember noticing, working out when I was much younger as a Python fan, that anything that opened with a long shot across Scottish moorland with a positive narration and then someone coming very slowly towards the camera, that was probably Palin and Jones. Hello, hello. What's going on here? It's nothing, senor. It's just some literature. They slightly stoned sketches. <laughs> and they really love, like a framing device, the narrator. Yeah. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who once said, 
who keeps talking about sherry. Our sherry tonight. It's supposed to be awesome. Wells, which is, it's, it's a lost joke that I don't think I got at the time and has been lost to time now. Well, there was a time when I think Orson Wells did sherry adverts yeah. <laughs> and it was really surprising. But it, yes, it opens with, with a, a narrator framing device which sort of says this is going to be a masterpiece theatre kind of thing. Mm. And I think probably helps Americans understand what it is as well because all their masterpiece theatre was sort of anchored by Alistair Cook or something. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. a, it's an authoritative voice. But it says we're going to do something that is... Um, Ripping the piss out of pompous drama. Who made the toast today? Uh, Judy, I think, Your Ladyship. Well, commend her. Most highly. Yes, Your Ladyship. Set her free, Mrs. Angel. <laughs> she is free, dear. Judy, free, surely not. They're all free, dear. All the servants. There's been no slavery in this country for donkeys yet. Is it one of the things that was one of Terry, Terry Jones's brother? had really good ideas. Because someone <laughs> telling him about... They'd stayed. They'd stayed in that hotel. The Monty Python... Oh, right. stayed, and, 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 and Terry Jones's brother said, you know, there's a TV series Amazing. in that. Amazing. And I think it was the same with Ripping Yarns. They were talking about it's during... The Dubois. powerhouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have no idea what he did for a living, but he had a couple of really good ideas. And I, th- I think Ripping Yarns was one of them. I'll have, let me amazing. check this. There's that book from Fringe to Flying Circus that, where I think well, I got this from. We'll, we'll check this and I'll put in a little voiceover underneath it if we're wrong. And we'll say, <laughs> but at the moment, it's, it's a lovely idea. So Let's was wrong. Let's stick with it. <laughs> Just joining you here in the footnotes to say I've checked in Roger Wilmot's from Fringe to Flying Circus, and it does appear that Sophie is right, that Terry Jones's brother did suggest making a TV series out of the ripping yarns idea. Um, he didn't come up with 40 Towers. That was TV producer and unexpected African tribal chief Humphrey Barclay, who suggested there was a show in the rude hotelier. Um, Terry Jones's brother did come up with one other idea, though. It wasn't 40 Towers. It was Palin and Jones's 1969 show, A Complete and Utter History of Britain, a sort of proto-horrible histories. So he is good at coming up with ideas. That's two hits for uh, the Jones sibling there. Well, the three obvious spin-offs that come off Python, which is Rotten the Weekend Television, which is Eric Idle doing the same thing again, but on a lower budget, and sort of very ideas-based. Uh, this, which is bigger sketches, the long sketches from Python. Mm. They, they, obviously, they did the, the cycling tour, Reg Pitt, the cycling tour. They like doing long stories, and they seem to be the drive behind doing the films, the, the narrative of the films. And then you get 40 Towers, which obviously is a perfect farce. Yeah. But I think looking back on it, it's really interesting that John Cleese appears to have mastered farce and almost struggled with anything else. Mm. Whereas this shows that those guys can really write. Yes. The imagination, both behind the spoof, but actually also behind the stories and yeah. the way that the stories develop is, although you're being set up for a very predictable tales by the different sort of narrative genres you go yeah, into you know at the start the of each one, yeah. but where they go to yeah. each time is somewhere really special. Now, there's a real talent there. Gentlemen, in the last four months... I've brought the Balkan Wars to an end, averted a revolution in Russia for the second year running, started a civil war in Persia, annexed two new colonies. I've been saving this country every year since 1898, and I need a holiday. They are sketches. They are sketch ideas. You do a thing, you go, okay, it's a murder mystery, but everyone kills everyone else. They're basically (laughs) sketch ideas. And then the the challenge they're setting themselves is, can we make it last for half an hour? Mm. But also, can we give it the values of a film? So they, they, they exist... Weirdly, in that, I think Palin said he thought they might be an hour, but they'd be terrible if they were an hour. They're, they're a sketch idea extended to half yeah. an hour, which is a very rare thing to watch. Yeah. They don't need to be massive. They don't need complicated plots, but they need a story. Yeah. So they need to be able to do that. And it's, a, it's them showing off their chops, really, I suppose. Yeah. I know bits of Tomkinson School Days go on to video, don't they? But the, all of the rest of them, yeah. and most of Tomkinson School Days, is film. Yes. And it does look really different. It looks, I mean, it also cost a fortune. Well, that's the deal. They made Tomkinson School Days as the Michael Payne special, and that was done how you would do a normal special. And it was such a hit. It was the BBC loved it. And it got, it was loved by, by the previous generation. I know Dennis Norton said he'd not laughed so much in ages. Yeah. Ronnie Barker was a really big fan of it. They feel a little bit like those two Ronnie's extended sketches they in do. the middle. Yeah. And uh, Jim Franklin, who goes on to direct them after, uh, after Terry Hughes stops doing it, was the, was the guy who did uh, the film bits for the two Ronnie's. They are in that key. Yeah. But the BBC loved it and they went, what do you want to do next? Anything you want. And they went, oh, can we have all film? Which no one had asked for. Yeah. And it meant, I think Terry Hughes said it was double the budget for a sitcom. 
<laughs> and that's why there's not many of them, is they could only make them in batches of three every financial year. So at the end of it, there's only nine. And the reason to stop doing them, to not do a full 13, is because they went, we can't justify taking the money away. People, the canteen needs food in it. We can't yes. carry on like this. <laughs> but they're, they're massively expensive and they, they, they set a terrible standard, I think, for anyone who grew up with them, thinking the moment you get a job at the BBC, you'll be given the budget to make one of these. Yes. I think you need to be Michael Palin to get away with it. Mr Khan, would you show Mr Winfrey to the bottom of the stairs? Yes, of course. This way, sir. Mrs Pardington will show you to the top of the stairs. And Mr Rothman will meet you and take you round the court. Then Mr Vickers will take you to the door of your room, where Mr Gurdon, master of the bedchamber, will take you inside. And then Mr Campbell and Mr Rowley will take you across to the mantelpiece. I trust you will be comfortable. When you first saw Tomkinson's School Days, what was it that you loved about it? Like everywhere you looked, there's there was something happening. So there's one bit where he's looking at the school notice board, and the, every single notice is yes. funny. There's one that says shooting, and then it just says underneath the following boys <laughs> being shot. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to get a joke in everywhere. Everywhere, every every single moment, there's something happening, and that's always enjoyable in the moment, but also for repeat viewing. There's yes. much more to reward you, and it was it was partly that. There was also something slightly, so it felt quite grown up. So the school bully has has some Filipino ladies in opium. <laughs> One of the things that's always peeping out from underneath the respectability is everyone's horny. <laughs> Everyone's relentlessly sort of like his mum's having his te- having it away with her tennis instructor, or Don Henderson in in uh, across the Andes by Frog is constantly sort of suggesting. They're always sort of Aubrey Morris in Curse of the Claw, the Butler who's going to have the naughty books if you don't need them. Everyone's just randy as hell. Uh, excuse me, sir. Yes, Grona. Uh, if you won't be requiring the naughty books, may I? Yes. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Uh, oh, thank you very much indeed, sir. Good night again, sir. There's a whole bit, sorry, but in The Curse of the Claw, when he grows up in a family who, when his parents are Victorian and completely obsessed with covering the human body. Strutting knitted garments to cover the entire human Which body. Which ends up killing her, I think. Yeah. <laughs> But then he he ends up on the, the, one of the curses of the claw is that things keep going wrong and he's on a boat and he he's the captain of a boat and he falls in love with the pe- chief petty officer who is obviously female. It's Judy Love. <laughs> it's Kate Beckinsale's mum. <laughs> you don't know what it's like trapped in this man's body. Um, what are what are those? These. Yes. Oh, I've been putting on weight there ever since I was sixteen. It's a recognised medical condition. Well, in that case, maybe I can rub something on you. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the most erotic thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> it's a beautiful shot afterwards where they, they all, where he realises that everyone on the boat is a woman apart from the, 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 the man who stokes the engine. That night we discovered that Russell had been wrong. He was a woman after all. It was a mistake anyone could have made in the sort of society in which we'd been brought up. And there's that beautiful shot of them just on the prow, a boat out at sea, yes. with all these people just sitting around like a bunch of hippies yes. with their hair all down. We discovered that most of the rest of the crew were women as well. Free from the repressions of the world we left behind us, we began to talk frankly about ourselves and our bodies and our needs. I was happy for the first time in my life. It looks like a commune. And there's that lovely, in all of it, this sort of pulling between sort of tight stays and corsets. Yes. And how things, and respectability and how things should be. And a slightly naughty 60s sensibility of saying we should just let everything hang out. Oh, you did ask for schoolgirls. Well, if you'd only said so, I was fine. We could have fixed you up. That seemed distinctly different to me. Um, <laughs> so, and there's something also just gloriously silly about their approach to everything. They'll, they'll take the spoof, but there's just like... When Tomkinson gets shot during French dictation <laughs> and his mother comes to visit him and she brings him shoe trees. How are the wounds? Oh, not bad, not bad. Here, I brought you these. Oh. <laughs> what are they? Shoe trees, dear. Oh, super. <laughs> 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 and it's and, and he looks slightly disappointed, and then the whole thing just moves on. There's that. Like, well, it's got it's got the energy. The, I think one thing that's most impressive about this, which I only noticed watching it this time round, and it was a real joy. I just went back. I thought I knew them off by heart. It's lovely to look at them again. Was that there are rules to this, and uh, about where you can be silly. Silliness has enormously well set mm. rules. And if you're going to tell a story, you mustn't be too silly because people won't follow the story. Yeah. And each one of these things is a perfectly capsule world in which someone can say something silly, like "I brought you shoe trees," or "My father pretended to be French to stop 
to avoid having to talk to me. It was the same with me dad. He pretended to be French when he came in. Hoping I wouldn't talk to him. As long as you then don't deviate, as long as that doesn't wreck the story. Yeah. Oh, quel journeo, bastelotte. Je suis très fatigué, demain, Vera. Oh, yes, dear. They have a rule, a contract with the audience that says, we will do silly things, but they won't break the story. You won't be a fool for following the story. Yeah. And it's a really respectful thing. And it's really easy to break because you're talking about, say, that notice board covered in stuff. In something, a bad example, the airplane's pretty good at this, especially in an airplane, there might be something on there that breaks the reality of the world. There might be something pinned up there that's, say, modern. They do that joke. But in Ripping Arms, the world is completely sealed utterly solid it's always edwardian where it's going to be edwardian they don't break the fourth wall they don't do things that those characters wouldn't do the world's mad but it makes perfect sense mm. and i think if you sat down to write one of these you'd be tempted to do all the stupid jokes and it's an amazing act of discipline they don't yes yes it's beautiful as you say completely internally consistent in the in the testing of eric Oldthwaite. His father does pretend to be French to avoid talking to him. <laughs> and there's just a couple of points where someone says, that, isn't that Jean-Pierre Oldway? Jean-Pierre But it pays off and they keep it. The consistency is solid. Quel jour j'avais au You're not fooled. There's no trickery. If you mm. invest in a character's motive and a character's story, then it doesn't trick you. And this is an amazing example of how to get Python humour in without ever breaking the rules. I think the, the films are way naughtier than this is. Yeah. They, they do break the rules and they do have things that are narratively unsatisfying in them. But this, as an example of Python filmmaking, they're all really well behaved. Yes. Which yeah. is disciplined and hard. It paradoxically gives it a slightly longer shelf life in some ways because yeah. the, the rule breaking works when you know okay, this is how these things work, but you go to it fresh, it can be a bit disconcerting. Yeah. You need a bit more kind of help understanding it. Yeah. You can take a... I mean, when you're doing stupid or, or, or rule-breaking, fourth wall-breaking or just, just lunatic humour, it can be really invigorating. But you have to know what you're doing to an audience's mm. uh, enjoyment when you, when you do break those things. You can, find, you can be audacious and hilarious, like when Brian gets rescued by aliens in Life of Brian. But you might say, well, hang on, I was enjoying being in yeah. 33 AD. And yet something like Shoe Trees... Or um, my favourite joke on the rewatch was in Testing of Eric Holthwaite when Ken Colley's bank robber comes in and says to the bank manager... Right! Put your hands above your head. Both of you. Stand up. I am standing up. And you just realise he's about three foot tall, but he's behind a desk and for about two minutes. Just going, <laughs> I'd forgotten that. But it doesn't spoil the story. And then it gives you a call back later on where I couldn't get a job and so on because I was too small. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Nothing in that scene is realistic, as in mm. it's a stupid joke. It's, a, it's yeah. just a gag on the level of a line. And lots of it they do, and you get the feeling that I can see how it was written. You've written a line and gone, what can happen next? You've written a line that would happen in one of these things. What could happen next? And you subvert it, and they go, right, we'll carry on with that. Yep. Just the complete conviction of once you've done the joke, stick at it. Don't throw it away. No joke is thrown away. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's completely, yeah, it insists on its own reality mm. um, and kind of dares you to question it. I think Palin said it was all about confidence, the confidence of empire, when you realise it's folly. He said Britain was confident, yeah. even when it was wrong. Yeah. And it's got this storytelling technique that says, even if we've told you something that doesn't make any sense, we're going through with it. And I think it's, it's a really clever joke in that it means it's not only uh, a good way of telling jokes, but it's also, I think it's thematically solid. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
It's an anthology series, which means that each episode is a different story, making it obviously exciting and very, very expensive. Hence, there not being many of them. The first one is a, a school days parody about uh, a boy at a brutal public school called Greybridge. And that was the pilot that got them the deal. And that's a, just a brilliant... I think in terms of an entry level, that's your first one you should watch, isn't it? Definitely, definitely. It's it's joyful. There was also the compulsory fight with the grizzly bear, which all new boys had to go through. And there's a real feeling that's definitely a howl of pain about school from Palin, who obviously went, I went through this process, but maybe I didn't like it. And there was St. Tadger's Day. When, by an old tradition, boys who had been at the school for less than two years were allowed to be nailed to the walls by senior people. Yeah, because it's quite dark. He ends up becoming the thing he hates. He becomes the school bully. Yeah, it's a loop, isn't it? It's, it's like The Shining. You are the new caretaker. You can't get out of the place that terrified you. <laughs> this, you know. I mean, parents send their boys to Greenbridge just to be bullied by you. Oh, I'm afraid that's your problem, you scruffy little creature. You know, there's no one in the school. Your, your strength, your, your effortless, almost superhuman... What about Tompkins? I was going to make him head of school. Oh, come on. Oh, now he deserves more than that. It's well done because the school bully is so awful and... <laughs> I think it's, it's Ian Ogilvy, get, isn't it? Oh, I have to say, I think that sets something very primary in me. In my, like, <laughs> Ian Ogilvy, what a very handsome gentleman he is. Um, and he's an absolute he's, brute. <laughs> it's just awful. You call me school bully, you miserable little tick. <laughs> he gets tricked by the school bully into trying to escape from the school and he's arrested yeah. drunk. <laughs> with an unmarried Filipino lady and then he has to live on the school Marigat pitch for a while and it gets worse and and in the end he gets sent off to do the school hop Yes. Um, which on which lots of boys are considered to be likely to die. And it's beautifully shot. And you get this, and it's, it's one of those lovely Palin and Jones things where it's up in the mountains. Yes. And they, I think it's one of the things where they're demonstrating, going, if you give us film, mm. this will look sensational. And apparently it was one of the reasons that Terry Jones pulled out a bit, because he was up there in the mountains with his full Holy Grail head on, going, oh, there's a beautiful shot over here. There's a beautiful shot over here. And Terry Hughes, the director, was going, I'm a bit fed up with this man directing it for me. Yeah. And Terry went, I'll have to back away, because yeah. he would otherwise dominate. But, but on the other hand, they also, set a standard for how beautiful this can look and it looks gorgeous another reason why I think it's very very rewatchable in a way that a lot of studio comedy from the time has dated yes no it's definitely definitely it makes a huge difference just lands differently on the eye I don't know what Grace had given me the mountains looked wonderful that day huge grey green monsters grappled with the black satan like demons of the cliffs and crags and the grass reciting poetry. My father always said Nansen was on something when he explored Greenland. And now I could understand it. I felt I could hop forever. Anyway. It's part of that thing we were talking about saying the world has to be consistent and convincing. And part of that is that you look at it and the bucket, the container in which it's contained is utterly authentic. Mm. And some of that comes down to it being on film and being filmed very, very well. Some of it's also the cast. It's not a sitcom cast. It's a cast of really good actors who'd be in these kind of dramas. Yeah. Of course he doesn't like it. He does it because I tell him to, and because I'm the only person he knows who's ever likely to get him an archbishop prick. <laughs> is Mr Hoskins going to be an archbishop? When he's finished digging. Charles, <laughs> he thinks that it's going to be York or Canterbury, which is sad, really. Well, where is it? Soligorsk. <laughs> it's in the Ukraine, it's bitterly cold and the food's unspeakable, but I can't help that. The misdirection with, that you get with Tomkinson's school days is what he wants to do is escape and go home. He wants to be with his yes. mum and dad, except his father's got a woman somewhere <laughs> in the Antarctic. Um, and then he goes through the hop and he keeps hopping. <laughs> and he gets home to discover that actually his parents are having a fantastic sexy time while he's <laughs> at school. <laughs> and uh, so he goes back to school where he's announced to be the new school bully. There's a feeling of it being a satire and saying this is inescapable unless yeah. we question this. Very often the races are a wild goose chase. It's a hunting of the snark story. They're always after something. They think they're going to get it and they don't yeah. get it. Which again is the perfect way to parody a quest yes. story. Yeah. Um, they, they st- but they state what they want so you can follow the story and you watch them either get it or not get it. It's very clear. June 12th in big school Rear Admiral Sir Vincent Smythe Obelson, the polar explorer, will address the school. I wondered, 
Could this be my chance? When people talk about the Python humour being juvenile, I think all of it is scarred by their school days. Yeah. There's nothing, there's no joke in uh, doing the Bible, except unless you were forced to read it at school. Yeah. They choose subjects that, that they all agree they all know about because they all had the same kind of education, so yeah. the same era. Yeah. Um, and this is all about, they're still mocking their teachers yes. in quite a, quite a basic <laughs> way. Quite viciously. <laughs> Spontaneously, I shall be forced to close it down instantly and burn selected boys. <laughs> Palin is evidently a very nice man, but there's a little undercurrent of rage in this mm. about those institutions. In the same way as, again, in Python, where they talk about bank managers and accountants and doctors and generals and all the jobs they were probably going to head off to go and do. Yeah. And they're yeah. angry with them, that certainty. And they're all ridiculed. And one of the things that Palin and Jones are brilliant at, and I'm sure all the Pythons are, but them specifically, is... When someone appears and they are ostensibly something, a general, a soldier, they immediately are obsessed with something and it's revealing something inside them that is human and weak mm. and foolish. They want sex or they're just obsessed with violence. And it's a running joke in all of these that anyone who presents as something is either happily going to confess to something awful that's going on behind the behind the curtain or reveals it through the way they talk. And yeah, it's one of their running jokes mm. that, that these authority figures are ridiculous. That probably is best encapsulated in Tomkinson because it is what you do at school. You say your teachers are foolish. And it's the first time, was one of the worst things he has to do at school was beating the headmaster. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And that was that's so such a well built up point. Oh, here we go. Okay, corporal punishment is bad. Oh no, headmaster's yeah, yeah. a pervert. They do <laughs> they do lots of lovely. I mean, lots of them are they just twist things or they flip them over, and it's all playing with their expectations. And again, it works because they're parodies. Because mm. you know, in inverted commas, you know what's coming, mm. and then they do the opposite with it. And I think that's why. And it's the closest thing they did apart from the Python films that's like the Python films. Yeah. If you're a Life of Brian and Holy Grail fan, it's this. It's a genre you know. Yeah. You know what the story is. Now they'll play all the tricks they can on it. Mm. Perhaps there was a chance to change Greybridge. And for some reason, it was being offered to me. Do you want a good show, Tomkinson? But of course, I knew I would have to do it in easy stages. Call me school bully, you ghastly little toad. <laughs> Having done school days, the next one they do is, is the testing of Eric Holthwaite, which is a, a, called a northern yarn. And it's just a... Uh, a rip of all the cliches about brave northern pluck of ordinary boys. Uh, but again, they find an amazing thing to do with that, to twist mm. it over. You'd come home damp, as if it had been raining, even though there hadn't actually been evidence of precipitation in the rain gauge outside the town hall. I love that. The, the um, he's, he's boring, and then he gets taken hostage. By a bank robber? Yeah, by Ken Colley. He's he's abducted by Admiral Piet from Star Wars. <laughs> and then the he was going to kill him because yeah. he's witnessed him, he's seen his face. And then he's so boring <laughs> and sad. And, you know, he, he's the only person who cares about the rainfall and the different ways of measuring rainfall in their town. And then it turns out the bank robber is also quite interested in rainfall. Yeah. And it saves his life. But then he joins the bank robber and becomes part. And then he That's gets. a Bonnie and Clyde pastiche for a bit, isn't it? He becomes glamorous. His girlfriend, who was finding him too boring, was having sexual intercourse with lots of other men, is suddenly interested in him again. And It's a good class gag that I thought there's a nice point one of the I think the, the Ken Colley is the bank robber says it says, do you think rich people are interesting Arthur what is it do you think if I had more money people would find me more interesting well of course they would lad you look at the knobs in the big houses with the big bellies and the big cigars you don't think people go fawning around them because they like them do you it's the money they like now just keep your head still ah, sorry and there's a good streak of class gag in these all the way towards the last one which is Roger the Raj which is about like insurrections and revolutions yes. the things that will bring down the certainties of empire yeah. and, and the order of society is questioning a lot of these yeah. but I love that thing where he says well do you think rich people are interesting yeah. it's a lovely joke yeah um, and it's another brilliant thing of, of, about Palin who I think has an inner fear of being boring as a, as a childhood train spotter 
yeah. and is worried that he's boring. And maybe his parents told him off, said, don't be boring, don't bang on about things. Well, our Irene said I were a boring little tit. But in Eric Oldthwaite, <laughs> he's a caricature of himself. Yeah. Where he's obsessed by rain and shovels. Sure, it does happen, even with the best shovels. <laughs> you know, Eric, oh, it's silly, I know, but... It's nice to sit and talk to somebody about shovels. You're right. You're right, because we're going to see this in other ones. That character, that character trait yeah. does keep coming back. You're right. It's a good, it's a solid Python gag. I remember noticing this years ago when I first was a massive Python fan, that one of the things that will happen in a Python story, especially the films, is that a story will try and get started and then the people involved in that story get in the way of the story continuing. And it's a running game, whether it's Michael Palin's little peasant. We're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. Or asking about the weight of swallows. <laughs> Are you suggesting coconuts migrate? Not at all. They could be carried. What? A swallow carrying a coconut? Or haggling about a beard. This bloke won't haggle. Won't haggle? There's always someone who gets in the way of the progression of an epic story, that a burst of fanfares. <laughs> You're suddenly on a Viking longship and then someone's obsessed by the food or something. Without the spam! Yeah. People can't get the story started. Yeah. And that's a good joke, but it's a bold thing to do because you do need to also tell a story. Yes. That is still what's going on here. This is yeah, yeah, yeah. We are going to have to get the yarn. Will have to be ripping. There's something I'm much more interested in than that. What's that? Rainfall in this area. That's where I've seen you before. What? Rain gauge in town hall gardens. You go there every that night. As we talked excitedly about shovels and precipitation. Arthur and I decided we had so much in common that we would form a gang. Despite the fact that you want to talk about camshafts or shovels or something. The handle on the shovel. New handle. But it is It broke right off. <laughs> I think it's really charming, especially the, the twist that the, the robber likes him. Yeah. And it reminded me of I went to Comic Con for the first time ever a couple of weeks ago with my kid and suddenly went, that's where all the nerdy, frightened people go to find other nerdy, frightened people mm. and be heroes. Yeah. And that's what this story feels like. It feels like he's found someone who goes, oh, it's, actually, I keep being told I'm boring, but actually, we're friends. Yeah, yeah. It's a story of neurodivergence. Yes. <laughs> Mum! 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 Have you read about Eric Goldthwaite? He's wanted by police in three counties. Aye. I don't believe it. He becomes so glamorous, the mayor wants to hang out with him. And yeah, the, yeah. Yes. <laughs> he becomes the coolest guy in town. Yeah. And it's, it's almost like, yeah, it's a revenge of the nerd story. It's great. It's a very, very sweet one, that one. Mm. I think as a kid, I, I preferred the sort of the action ones. Yeah. And then as I've got older, this one's warmed up for me. I, I love it. And it's still got like, foolishness in there, like his French-speaking father, or the father of his girlfriend keeps vultures, yes. racing vultures. You know what, question? That almost is the perfect example, alongside shoe trees, of a joke that doesn't derail it. <laughs> you go, well, that's a funny gag to write. And a funnier gag to require the props department to go and find some vultures. <laughs> and then just stick with it. Yep. Have complete faith. In this world, that's what happens. And it's this is beautifully shot. This is Jim Franklin, who's the goodies uh, director. Oh. Um, and it, But it looks like a glorious yeah. northern drama. Yeah. And it's the first one that you're really proving that if you do the whole thing on film, the results are that that joke about the vultures wouldn't work. Yeah. In the studio with a puppet. Terry Jones said, you've got to take comedy seriously. Terry and I both just... just thought that things should look good and there was no reason why comedy should just be sort of creaking scenery and sort of the same old bedsit land. Do it as you would do drama and, and so that there was a kind of reality to it all in the proper surroundings. Then the madness could sort of take off. I think that's true. I think one of the things that's easy, I'm a scientist, I'm not a creative person at all, but it's very, very easy to imagine that when people are doing comedy, that somehow it just happens, you yes. know, it just occurs. People are naturally able to do this stuff and out it comes and they haven't spent a minute worrying about it. It's just been captured in the moment and there we are. But the, the sheer amount of things that need to be right yeah, yeah. to make something funny and then to make it come alive on a screen or on a page yeah. or on a stage. I remember listening to Steve Coogan talking about the Alan Partridge film, just how relentless he was with yeah. making, cutting stuff out of it because every single moment had to be funny and it was not slightly funny to be doing that. 
because that's as you say, it's a serious business. Watching this again, I was reminded this is this is kind of a thesis in saying what would happen if you spent as much money on comedy as you do on drama. Yes. And I thought, well, it's obvious the answer to that is you can't do that. You can't. And I thought, hang on, this works. Actually, good. Yeah. And when the Royal Shakespeare Company puts on As You Like It or Much Ado, it costs the same as putting on Leah. Yeah. And they take it seriously, but on television, because of the way the departments and budgets work, you are supposed to do a thing which involves props. Costumes, actors, locations, catering, lighting for half the money yeah. or a fraction of the money. And I think Ripping Arms is one of the great arguments for me as a comedy writer for why you should spend the money. Yeah. And as far as the BBC was concerned, are an example of why you should never spend the money because it was far too expensive. Well, the most exciting thing about being on the run was a chance to compare rainfall conditions in various parts of the country. But the results are great. The results are great and, and it's funny and other things are allowed to be expensive. You see it everywhere. You see, speaking as a scientist who studies laughter, it's considered to be an insane thing to study by many of yeah. my colleagues. Why would you study such a foolish thing? It's, it's just trivial. It's silly. It's not grown up. And it pans out everywhere. When do people ever win like prizes for performances in comedies? The closest I can remember is Melissa McCarthy getting nominated yeah, yeah. for an Oscar as a supporting performer and you know and in Bridesmaids. And that was notable because it was so unusual. It's really weird. I remember going I tell you, I said this, I may have said this on this podcast before. I remember going to a BAFTAs awards. Uh, and before it started, Stephen Fry said, and let's have a look at some of the wonderful things the British television has done this year. And they showed a bunch of clips and then, there wasn't a single frame of comedy in it. Yeah. And it was a year that Detectorists had been out and Catastrophe and Inside Number Nine, things that looked beautiful, yeah. and were beautifully directed. And they weren't considered part of it. Now, the, the thing that's mad about that is if a comedy is really well made and they've spent a lot of money on it and it succeeds and you laugh, then job done. Whereas if a drama is done and you feel thrilled and you didn't know who done it, they go, brilliant, and it give it awards. Yeah. Go, but the same process, using very often the same kit and yeah. the same people, same editors, you make a spoof crime thing, you get the people who make a real, real crime drama in, they do the same job. Yeah. And the weird thing is that one of them is supposed to cost half as much money. Yes. And Ripping Arms is an absolute flag in saying... Well, hang on. If I want to create a world, a convincing yeah. world, even if it's got vultures and shoe trees and, and Ian Ogilvy with unmarried Filipino women in his room, it should look real. Yeah. It might cost you a bit. Yeah. It's, it's a massive ongoing issue, I think, that is just see it everywhere. It, it, everything about comedy and humour is underpaid, yeah. undervalued, and somehow thought to be not quite real, not real hard work. It's not real. Yeah. And it's funny because with something like this, where what you're doing is puncturing pomposity. Because the stories, drama itself is pompous. And these stories, with their certainty, their imperial values and things, need to be pricked. The pompous needs to be yeah. pricked. So you need to spend money building that edifice yeah. to then pull it down. Yeah. And I think there are great examples of how that works is a great way, which is the same as Airplane. Build a really overdramatic film and then pull it down. But you do need to spend the money on building the film first. Yes. <laughs> In 1916, in the heart of the Kaiser's Germany, were prisoners of war for whom the iron heel of submission was intolerable. This is the story of one such man. And obviously a perfect film to parody is a, is a war film. And they set it in the First World War, and that one's called Escape from Stalag Luft 122B. It's absolutely wonderful because it starts with a man who keeps escaping from various <laughs> uh, prison camps uh, when he's been caught. And he finally ends up in the most secure place, having escaped on the way there. Oh, again and again and again. Although Major Phipps attempted to escape nine more times on that fatal journey, it seemed that at last the Germans had broken the soul of this hardened escaper. Only to discover that no one there is interested in escaping, escaping yeah. at all. And he comes up with more and more outlandish plans. <laughs> he, he builds a glider out of toilet rolls. People keep screaming at him when they go to the toilet. Um, and he tries to get people in and they won't come with him. So he's like, I'll do it on my own. And to cut a very long story short, they end up escaping without him. He wakes up one day and they've all gone. He's the only person left who hasn't escaped. And it, but there's that great part. It builds a beautiful punch. He's the only person not to have escaped from Stalag 122B. And that's a lovely sketch idea but played out completely mm. with a story that works. And you do feel it. It's a great joke that is always really hard to do because one of the temptations when you're doing a comic character is to do someone who's shit at things. Yeah. And it's one of the things that's really hard when you're trying to write. I'm going to try to write for Danger Mouse once. And the joke with Danger Mouse is really hard is he's really good. Yeah. Because even the song at the start tells you he's brilliant. Yeah. And the only joke you can do there is that they're too good. And that's a great, it's Buzz Lightyear where a hero is too heroic and it gets in their way. And this is a great one where Palin's hero is so good at escaping, 
it's actually his disability. Listen, Phipps. I don't want to hear anything about escape plans except through the correct channels, do you hear? There are 1,400 toilet rolls in there. I'm sorry, Phipps, but this is our camp and we do things our way. You bally idiots, what's the matter with you? Don't you want to escape? There's a proper way of doing things, Phipps. Like sitting on your asses till the war's over? It's a brilliant joke on that impossible Richard Hannay uh, superhero that, that the Empire needed. Um, and also taking the piss out of war heroes, which is quite subversive. He refuses to just leave. He, he, he ends up being guarded by all the guards very seriously. And there's a beautiful bit. The situation with the guards, the German guards and these English prisoner, British prisoner, prisoners of war is that they've got very kind of strict rules about what the Germans can and can't yes. do. Like, you can't come in here. No, this is British sovereign territory and things. And um, <laughs> that's a lovely bit where the, one of the German guards, you know, Roy Kinnear saying, oh, you've got out of bed. You've got he says, no, no, you shouldn't be in here. And, and the... Uh, yeah, the guard starts going, oh, you know, he's right, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you shouldn't be in here. There's all the rules. And <laughs> it's, all the jokes in these things are about there are rules and systems. And it's all about growing up in a society where someone has said that without these rules, society will crumble. And you are doing what a kid does and put your hand up and go, what if we did? Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose that's the essence of what comedy is. As you say, yeah. I've been brought up with these rules. What if we didn't? What if we look at it differently? I, you know, I know you're writing a book on this and I'm looking forward to reading it, but one of the things that fascinates me about what makes something funny yeah. is that intention to do so, that position that you take, that eye, that, that, that perspective yeah. that you start from, no matter what that is almost, it's, it's an intentional stance to be funny, to be taking a position with respect to something. And I, it's why it's hard to be funny without realising that you're doing it. I mean, it's not impossible, but it tends yeah. to be a bit more slapsticky. Yes. When, when, yes. When someone says, did you mean to be funny? The answer is always yes. Yeah. Because what you're doing is, someone used this phrase once, being at a slight angle to the universe. Mm. And all you're doing very often is just standing slightly to the left of it, looking at it from another angle and going, well, why are we doing that? Yeah. And that's why a lot of really good humour came out of the forces in the Second yeah. World War, because there were very, very strict rules. And you can't run an army without strict rules. And that's why you get Catch-22 and you get the goons. Yeah. What an idea! Climb Everest from the inside. It's never been done before. Or public school or university. There are ways of doing things. And you take a slight stand to the left and look at it and go, but why? Who yeah. said? Yeah. And it's, I think that's one of the reasons why it's not taken seriously, because it's indistinguishable from what naughty kids do at school. But there is, there's something unruly about it, isn't there? You get the same thing with, like, I think one of the reasons why scientists don't like laughter, although it's a very common <laughs> human behaviour, is that there's something a little bit out of control about it. Like when people are laughing, things, yeah. other things might happen. They might not do what you want them to do because they're, yeah. they might start to, they might start to laugh at the thing you don't want them to laugh at. They might want, they might yeah. not take other things seriously. There's a, there's an anarchy there, yeah, which is I, just under the surface. And it gets, that gets talked about some sort of holy fool thing amongst comedians and, and people who write about comedy. But I think it's it's not even that sort of wild. And so it's as basic as saying, just asking why, putting yeah. your hand up and going, why? Like being a toddler. So why do we have to go to nannies? Why do we have to go there? Why are we doing this? Why do I have to sit in the back of the car? And the answer is, because otherwise this is chaos. Yes, and the chaos, oh no, they brought the chaos in. The chaos and I think is- that that's why as well, uh, when... Palin said this about ripping yarns. We delighted the BBC. People liked it. But he still felt the same thing that happened when he was in Python, which is there was a feeling that they were the naughty boys. And he said, well, we've just done a thing. It looks beautiful. We used the proper cameras. We used, <laughs> we used the proper actors. Look, Denham Elliott's in this. Everyone you like's in it. Joan Sanderson, Richard Vernon. It's absolutely wonderful. We've done everything to a top value. It's winning awards. Everyone loves it. And still at every meeting, you're the naughty boys. Yeah. And Ooh. I think... Tut, tut, tut. Yeah. yeah. And I think that comedians either love that feeling or feel like they're being taken for granted for that. And I think that Palin yeah. and Jones are saying, hang on, you asked us to go and do this. It's not a mistake that we came back with a silly... There's all that sort of thing going, you sent us out to go and make a Raj drum, we came up with a funny one. That wasn't an yeah. error. It was totally deliberate. And when you're a master of your craft, like these guys are, you want to be respected for it, I suppose. Yeah, you're not... That sort of diminutive position we put comedians like that yeah. in. Like, oh, those silly boys. You it know. came back and it was full of jokes. Yeah. That, was, that was harder than not putting the jokes in. <laughs> yes, exactly. It is harder to be funny. What's the use of having a war when nobody does anything bad to each other? What's the point in a war where everyone's saying, hello, how are you? Good evening, old chap. Have some chocolate. Surely there are humanitarian considerations which are applicable even in wartime. I know. I, 
I mean, there's nothing I'd like better to give people my chocolate and say, hello, how are you? But conditions of war create an unreality which calls for a different kind of moral code. Are you saying that we should abrogate our basic responsibilities for our fellow men because of some disagreement over the size of the Austrian Empire? <laughs> No, I'm saying there's a moral code. There's individual moral codes during the time of war. But what you're saying... No more argument. From now on, we run this prison camp as all there is a war on. The other thing I have to say about uh, the escape from Stalag Luft is what a joy to see Roy Kinnear. Yes. Absolutely in full flight. He's this incredibly irritated uh, commander yeah, of the camp. Vogel. Yes. It's great, actually, because I think it puts him on a par with all the great dramatic actors they've got in this. These are cast with the people who would be in a Sunday classic serial yeah. all the way through. And you put Roy Kinnear and go, yes, he'd be in a Dickens or something. He's great. Yeah, a much missed fantastic comedy actor, but his, uh, again, sort of probably not seen for how skilled he was at the time, but he's, it's just a joy to see him getting so cross. Yeah, and he's this allowed... Foolish Englishman. It's not a two Ronnie's performance. It's not a sketch show performance. Everyone is allowed to do proper comic acting. I suppose having serious actors as the as the rest of the cast would have seemed a gamble to BBC Light Entertainment, but I don't think it was a gamble. I think uh, um, a, a lot of serious actors like playing these parts, and also they were written to be done seriously. Maybe that's a thing as well, that we've lost... Maybe that's worth defending. We've lost the comic play, which mm. a Wednesday play could have been a comic play. It could be Abigail's Party. It could yeah. be funny. Drama now is very much drama and comedy is very, very common. This comedy drama, it blurs. But the idea of a one-off play in which people get to act at a certain calibre, but for comic effect, like in an Ealing film yeah. or, or a Bolting Brothers movie, these are in that key where you get to yeah. act an acting style that is you're playing comedy, but play it straight. Yes, exactly. Yes, you are, you are an actor. And it's hard. It's hard to do that well. And they all do it. Palin said as well, he had to set the, the key because said people would come and think, oh, we're getting to play. We're getting to mess about. We're going to bring our toys in. Yeah. And he said, I have to do it with complete conviction and therefore you'll come and meet me there. Yeah. And yeah. you can see the actors, they all take their lead from Palin who does it all with utter earnestness. Yes, yes. And that's where the joke is. There's the, yeah, there's no eye to the camera. This is funny, is there? This is, this is completely, completely internally consistent. There's no Dick Emery. Yeah, yeah. No, again, every, nothing wrong with Dick Emery, but it's not that. It sets its rules out very clearly. It says when Maria Aitken's in it, she's going to be playing the same performance you've seen Maria Aitken do in a proper drama, and that will say to you, "Here's the safe edges of this world, and whatever stupid stuff happens, it is really happening to these characters." Mm. And that's much, much funnier, I think. Mm. For Major Phipps, this was the moment. At last, he was free. Free to complete the largest glider ever assembled inside a prisoner of war free to complete a network of tunnels so elaborate that they later became part of the Munich underground system. But a catapult so powerful it could fling him 200 miles across occupied Europe. Well, that brings us to the end of part one of this two-part chat about ripping yarns with Sophie Scott. Join us next time for more Prime Palin. Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.